When they had gone, that is, the Magi, who had just visited Joseph and Mary, uh, having followed the star to see the baby, right? When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, said the angel, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Now, hands up if you don't have these Bible verses on your fridge. Right. What is going on? Now, there's a reason, isn't there, why we don't have them on our fridge. It's not because they're no good. It's perhaps just because they're a little bit difficult to understand uh, exactly what's going on and precisely how that might apply to us in our day-to-day. So before we start, I'll just flag up that these verses are a little bit harder. They take a little bit more work. And so I can see an immediate point of application for us when we come to verses like this in the Bible... And that is that verses like this force us to shift ourselves. They force us to move away from a fast food mentality to the Bible, to our relationship with God, to our relationship in in growing in the knowledge of Jesus. They stop us from being able to say, quick, give me my hit so I can move on. They make us stop, pause, slow down, and they make us move so that we can realize why what is written here is of value for us. You see, the problem isn't with the text, the problem is with us. We need to shift. What we see as being valuable and important needs to change and this texts like this force us to move around and shape our lives, shape our minds, so that that is the case. And so it's going to be a little bit like that this morning. We're going to have to do a little bit of work. Now, before we go close focus on the text, 
we're going to fly over and get a bit of a handle on the structure of what we have here. So just look with me in your Bible. What we've just read, even though in your Bible you've got one heading, is that right? The escape to Egypt? I think that what we have here is two subunits of a larger section which contains five of these little subunits. And we've just looked at two of them. And here's where I think it starts. Flick back to uh, chapter 1, verse 18. That's where I think it starts. The first little unit is the miraculous birth of Jesus. The second unit... Sorry, I should just pause here. Each of these units is, is characterized by uh, some reference to Old Testament fulfillment. So you'll spot in chapter 1, verse 22, that's in the first little unit, and then it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Right? The second unit starts at chapter 2, verse 1, and goes down to 2, verse 12. And that is, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and there, in verse 5, you have... For so it is written by the prophet. You see that? And then in verse 6, you've got the quote from uh, Micah. That's the second unit. The third unit is, from, uh, is the first little bit that we've read this morning from verse 13 in chapter 2, if you look there, down to verse 15. And the quote that we have is from Hosea, and it says there at the end of verse 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then the fourth section is from 16 to 18. You can see it ends there with that quote. It's been formatted to see it really easily. Uh, that's a quote from Jeremiah. And then the fifth section is from 19 to 25. Uh, to 23, sorry. And you'll see there that in verse 23 you have, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So, if you just tracked with that, what we have is two units. We're looking at unit three and four of five of a cluster that each are marked by Matthew interjecting a little comment about how what is happening historically is fulfilling Scripture. Before that, so now we're going to zoom out a little bit more just so that we can see this a little bit more clearly. Before that, go back to chapter 1. You'll see that from chapter 1 verse 1 down to verse 17 is the genealogy of Jesus. So here we've got our cluster of five. We've got a genealogy before it. And at the back of it in chapter 3 verse 1 it moves into John the Baptist. So the way the story flows is you have big long genealogy, cluster of five, John the Baptist, and then it moves into Jesus goes into the wilderness, Jesus starts preaching, ministry is game on. Right? But here in this cluster of five, and each is marked by something to do with fulfillment. Here's the point that I'm making and that Matthew wants to make. 
Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament hopes and expectations and patterns and predictions. Fulfillment holds these five units together. And what we'll do this morning is we'll zoom in on these two little bits and find out which specific pieces of fulfillment is Matthew referring to here. Now, let's come back. Now we're going to focus on these five units again. And we're just going to see that what Matthew does is the the, the shape of these five units is largely built around Herod and his effort to kill Jesus. That's the kind of narrative. That's what's happening historically. Herod has found out from the Magi that Jesus has been born. He sends the Magi there to inquire about the child. Bring back word for me. I'll go and worship him. The Magi get the dream. They bail, go another way. They're they're warned. Herod finds out and sends his guys to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. While that's happening, Joseph gets, an angel comes, says to him, take Jesus away. So Jesus goes off to Egypt. Herod's guys come in, kill the babies. Jesus then, after Herod dies, Jesus then goes over to Nazareth. That's what's happening historically. So historical events are unfolding. And at five junctures, Matthew interjects, this historical event happened... And this Old Testament thing was fulfilled. That's the big idea. Now, let's zoom in to chapter 2, verse 13, and find out what is going on there. So, chapter 2, verse 13. I won't read it again. Let's look at verse 15 and think about the connection that Matthew makes in this first one. So, the first unit... Uh, from verse 13 to 15, is where they're in Bethlehem. Joseph is given the dream by the angel to go to Egypt. Jesus goes to Egypt, and the reason he goes to Egypt is so that he can come out of Egypt. That's why it says, and he remained there. This is the beginning of verse 15, and he remained there until the death of Herod, so that he could then leave Egypt, right? So historically, that's what he's doing. Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. That's these verses. This was to fulfill, this event was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So let's go back to Hosea. What's happening in Hosea? The Lord is speaking through Hosea, to Israel, and he's reminding them about what he has done in the past, about the love that he has shown them, and what he says about them is, he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. You remember Israel was in Egypt as slaves, and the Lord brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, where he created this, uh, formed this people, But the thing about Hosea is, Hosea, Matthew's here in time, Hosea's back here in time, and Hosea is talking about an event back here in time. So the Lord is saying through Hosea, Israel, back then, out of Egypt, I called you my son. Right? 
He's not saying, so let's get it clear, Hosea is not saying, out of Egypt I will call my son. So it's not a prediction that Hosea is making about the future and saying something along the lines of, I'm going to have a son, you know, as as though the Lord were saying, I'm going to have a son and I'll call him out of Egypt. That's not what Hosea is saying. He's referring to a past event. Out of Egypt I called my son. He's referring to the Exodus. Right. So, hopefully I've tightened the screws enough on myself now and made the problem clear. How is Matthew now saying that this historical event of Jesus is fulfilling that word of Hosea? Here's the thing. Israel, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 to 23, is referred to as the Lord's son. I'll read a little section there. The Lord is talking to Moses and he's telling him what he needs to say to Pharaoh. And he says, this is what you should say to Pharaoh. Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son, Israel, go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So Israel is clearly referred to as the Lord's son. So Israel is the Lord's son, and now Jesus is being said to be the Lord's son as well. The way that I think this works is that it only works for Matthew if Matthew sees Israel's history as being a template. Israel itself, its whole history, is not the reality. It's a pattern or a blueprint or a template of the reality of God's ultimate plan of salvation, which is Jesus. So the institutions that Israel uh, received and the events that happened in history weren't just a collection of random events somehow, in a way that God knows but is mysterious to us, real human willful choices and events were put together in such a way that they created a pattern or a template that foreshadowed the reality. And Jesus is the reality. Israel was never the end goal. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is not an afterthought in God's plan after Israel failed and then, well, it looks like there's a sacrifice, that might be a good idea to kind of, I could work with that, says God. That's not how it's functioning. Mind explosion. All of Israel is a pattern. Jesus is the reality. Now, how can Matthew then say this particular event is fulfilling out of Egypt I called my son? And here's where I think that works. What Matthew is spotting is Matthew is spotting that there is sufficiently enough correspondences between what is happening with Jesus 
and what happened with Israel to say that the pattern has now been completed. The reality has come. So the historical events of Jesus going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt and having a tyrant killing babies and uh, in Israel's day we had Pharaoh killing babies and Moses escaping. So there are enough historical correspondences for Matthew to say a significant moment in God's redemptive plan is happening here such that I can say the pattern is now fulfilled. The template is giving way to the reality. And Hosea 11.1 doesn't just function as a little unit on its own. Hosea 11.1 is the point that Matthew lands on It's like a window that opens up into a whole history and an understanding of Israel and how they were supposed to function. So he's picking a key moment, like Luther nailing 95 Theses on the wall and hearing Reformation and everything that goes with it. But 95 Theses nailed on the wall is is a marker because it's historically significant enough It's got enough features around it that make it stand out that you can refer to that and have in mind way more. And so that's what Matthew's doing with Hosea 11.1. So we come in now to what does this mean for us. The pattern of Israel has come to an end and the reality of Jesus and the reality has arrived. And in studying this, it's interesting to note, Israel's history has not been canonized post-Chronicles, Malachi, sometime 400 years before Jesus arrives. The point is, Israel's history hasn't been canonized for the last 2,000 years. Nothing that's happened in their history has been added to the canon has contributed to the patterns and the institutions and the people who were types of the one to come of which Jesus fulfills, you see? Because Israel's role in that sense has come to an end. Because Jesus has arrived and so the story now moves forward with Jesus. And so what, how this affects us is when we come to the story, we come realize, this is not to say, by the way, that God has got nothing to do with national Israel. We can park that one for now. But in terms of their function as a pattern, I think that that's come to an end. And the story now moves forward. So Matthew's come in and he's saying, Israel's story is now moving forward through Jesus. God's plan of salvation is now moving forward through Jesus. And actually, that's natural, we should expect that, because Israel itself only entered the fray at chapter 12 of Genesis. It started wide with the whole world, and then at chapter 12 is where God zoomed in and focused his plan of redemption with Abraham, and that's when it narrowed down, you see. But it was always intended to fatten back out to the whole world. Because through you, all nations on the earth will be blessed. You see? And so 
as you track with the story, we're now tracking it was Israel. Israel, in that sense, has done its time. Jesus is where the story moves forward now. I'll give us one reflection for how that might affect us. And that is that God's uh, work is historical. It's a real historical Jesus in time and space. And why that is good news for us is that it's objective and it's outside of us. Christianity is not a philosophy or an ethical code that we kind of plug into our lives or mould ourselves to as we go around and around on a circle, sometimes further up, sometimes further down, sometimes following the code better, sometimes following the code worse. Christianity, God's purposes in the world, are happening whether we like it or not. History is moving in a line, it's going somewhere, it's not just doing a circle. And Jesus is a real man who's really coming back to really set up a physical kingdom and physically destroy his enemies. Jesus is historical like Barack Obama is historical. The difference is that they've both got different capacities. They've both been given different roles in history. One of them is the king of the universe. One of them is just a man. But they're both historical. That helps to take a little bit of the burden off us. What's happened with Christianity and with Jesus is you're invited into a story. You're not just given a philosophy or a code that you now try and work really hard to live by. You're invited into a story. You're invited into a real history with a real man, a real kingdom, a real world that's coming. So that's the first one. Let's look at verse 16 to 18. So the next thing that happens is, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So in Bethlehem, Herod's men have come. They've killed a lot of children who are two years old or under. The people in Bethlehem are now weeping for their lost children. And Matthew says that historical event fulfills what Jeremiah said years ago in chapter 31 of Jeremiah's prophecy. Now, before I tackle this, let me point something out. There is a man, uh, Richard France, and he's a first-rate New Testament scholar who has arguably written the best commentaries on Matthew and Mark. And he says that this is one of Matthew's most elusive Old Testament quotations and few claim with any confidence to have fathomed just what he intended. So, I will give my crack at it. 
But before I do, don't panic. Because perhaps when you hear that, you think, oh no, Dave doesn't know what's going on in the Bible. Richard France doesn't know what's going on in the Bible. Does anybody know what's going on in the Bible? Can anybody know anything? So let me just point out here that when we come to points like this in the Bible, we must remember that the two options are not know everything exhaustively or know nothing. That's not the two options we have. It's not know God exhaustively or don't know God at all. They're not the two options. Just because you don't know how many stars there are in the sky doesn't mean you don't know that there are stars in the sky. We, are all, we have to learn. That's normal. If we were here, there would be no place for learning at all. It would be exhaustive knowledge. God holds that knowledge. But rather, we know sufficiently, but we don't know exhaustively. And so there are points in Scripture where we keep moving forward, we get as close as we can, and by God's grace, perhaps he'll give us clarity. And just because R.T. France says, uh, you know, nobody says with any confidence, maybe there are some people that think, actually, I'm pretty confident that I know what's going on. So there you go. But here's what I think is happening. So I'll just tell you what's happening in Jeremiah 31. So in Jeremiah 31, as a whole... The chapter is almost entirely concerned with restoration. So what will often happen in the prophets, there'll be a word of, a common pattern will be, repent, you're you're not being faithful to the covenant, uh, and because you're not being faithful to to the covenant, uh, the curses are coming upon you. God's coming in judgment. But then, almost always, there are rays of light that burst through in the midst of the judgment And these rays of light are rays of hope, uh, rays of restoration, rays of comfort. The big moment of punishment for Israel was exile, right? So God had brought them into the land that he had promised to give them. But he had told them when they go in there, unless you are 100% obedient, I'm kicking you out of the land, amongst other things. But unless you are wholeheartedly committed to my covenant, I'm going to send you out of the land that I'd promised to give you. And that's exile. So they leave their land and they end up in Assyria or Babylon uh, or sometimes Egypt. And that exile, the removal of the nation from the land, that was the big moment. That was the big punishment. And we see that that was the big historical moment that Matthew flags up in verse 17. Just quickly look in chapter 1, verse 17. You see there at the end of that genealogy, look at the jumps that he makes. Can you see that he ends there, the exile to the Messiah? So the exile was the last big event for Israel. Now, going back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, as I said, is full of comfort. That's mostly what the chapter's concerned about. Israel's going to be brought back from exile. Um, And during that time, there's going to be shouting on the mountains, there's going to be abundance, people are going to go up to Zion, they're going to have babies, they're going to live in their houses and flourish, and all is going to be well for Israel. And then verse 15 comes like a bit of a jolt, actually, 
in the midst of this chunk of restoration prophecy, and we hear these words. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, historically, what happened was it was probably the case that the exiles on their way out of Israel uh, ended up in Ramah and were held captive there for a period before being shipped off to Babylon. And it became, it was a place of weeping. And so that moment historically, when Israel went into exile, characterized by what Jeremiah says, is a kind of a mark of exile. Weeping as people are leaving the country. One last thing. The way that this works is if Matthew still thinks that Israel kind of in exile. And I think that that is fair to say. Israel has come back from Babylon. They have rebuilt the temple, but they haven't escaped foreign rule. They're still under a foreign ruler. And the the prophecies spoken of in Jeremiah 31 and in Isaiah and many others haven't really come to pass. All the nations aren't streaming to them as though they are the highest peak uh, amongst the mountains. They're still riddled with sin. You read Ezra and Nehemiah and you find out that there are guys weeping at the rebuilding of the temple and thinking, you know, this is not the way that it was previously, let alone reaching the glories that the prophets have spoken of. And people straight at the, at the end of Nehemiah, they're still into, they, they go back and they're intermarrying with the other nations again. So I think there's, there's a sense in which Israel has come back, but they haven't really left exile. It doesn't really feel like judgment is totally over. They haven't reached those glories that the prophets have spoken of. Now, if that is Matthew's thinking about the nation... Here's what happens when the weeping happens in Bethlehem and the babies are killed. Matthew says, what's happening here with these weeping babies, these women weeping for their lost children, is another moment historically where there is enough correspondence to what started the exile. So there was a, that weeping at Ramah was a kind of moment where we say, oh right, that's exile language. When we hear that, we know that's exile language. And so when Matthew hears the weeping in Bethlehem, he says this historical moment is characteristic of our period in exile. And I'm saying now that exile is coming to an end. Exile has been filled up. That word of the Lord about people weeping for lost children has been fulfilled. That period has come to an end. And what that means is that the next phase of the story is about to take place. And what the prophets previously did is they would pick up in their prophecies, they would pick up on Exodus language and speak about the restoration as though it were a new Exodus. And so that maps on to the first little section that we've seen where Jesus is moving Israel's story forward. So in a nutshell, what we have is Jesus is Israel. The reality has arrived and the pattern is now finished and exile is over. The weeping has been fulfilled 
and the next stage of the story is about to happen. And Jesus is the one who you need to follow now to find out where the story's going next. Now, word of application. This is exciting only if we are interested and tracking with God's plan of salvation. If that's not what we're interested in, I think in my mind it loses its quality of being fascinating. But the more we're interested in in where God's salvation lies, the more we will be interested to know that's where God's redemptive plan is moving next. And so I think what Matthew's done in these five units is he's bombarding the readers with a sense of all expectations and the history up till now at the arrival of Jesus has all landed on Jesus. This particular man that has been born, he is the one who moves Israel's story forward, who brings the exile to an end, who is Emmanuel, God with us, who is the, uh, the Nazarene, the one set apart for the work of God to be a deliverer. He is the one that we now need to follow. And so maybe what you'll now do is you'll go, oh, maybe I'll read Matthew and find out what's going to happen next. How is Jesus going to bring the exile to an end? What is this new exodus going to be like, this deliverance? How does that happen? And what does it mean now for salvation if Jesus is Israel? Because previously you needed to plug into Israel for salvation and You know, you need to be a part of the people of God, and that's where the blessings and the curses came. Now, how do I get connected to Jesus? And the answer is, you get connected to Jesus by faith. As everybody in history has always looked in faith to God's promised saviour, Jesus is that promised saviour, and so in the same way, we look to him by faith, and we receive the blessings that he earned through his perfect life, didn't fail like Israel, and he himself bore the curses on the tree that we ought to have borne. And so all the blessing that he earned becomes ours. But we're on to another day there. So that is our text for this morning. Do read Matthew, follow some of these threads, ponder these ideas, and may we grow in our knowledge of Jesus.